Hey guys, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you for joining us for what is now episode number 147. As per usual, this is me, Jack, and your co-host, Tierra Nelson, and we'll be doing our usual Q&A today, and we're going to jump straight into question number one, which is, can dietitians help with acne via nutrition? Do you have any tips? So this is a great question. And speaking about acne, particularly when it comes to nutritional recommendations for acne, isn't necessarily outside our scope as dietitians. But of course, acne and skincare is certainly within the scope of a dermatologist. So I'd say right off the bat, if the health of your skin is concerning you, then I would definitely seek out a dermatologist. I think that would be very helpful. Yeah, there's, I mean, we both used to be younger people, Mm -hmm. obviously, and I think anyone growing up has some sort of issue with their skin where they're a little bit self-conscious, and then, of course, that proceeds into adulthood for a a lot of people as well, and it's certainly not uncommon for people to have acne or pimples into adulthood. Like, I know we have the occasional breakout here Mm -hmm. and there, and... But luckily, not nearly as many when we were pubescent teenagers. (laughs) Did you ever have bad acne growing up? Not bad acne, but definitely like when I was a young teenager and I started to menstruate and, you know, hormones were just going wild. You definitely had pimples pop up Mm. and quite a few more than you'd wish, especially if you had a party on the weekend and you're like, gosh, darn, get this zit away from me. And then Mm. you hear all these silly things on the internet about how to get rid of acne as a Mm. teenager. And Usually it just makes it worse, eh, amen. Like I remember one time I put toothpaste on this really gnarly pimple. I'm telling you, it didn't make the pimple disappear anymore. It just made that thing way more red and Mm. inflamed. And did you ever use any medication? No, I never used any medication, but I did use, you know, your standard stuff from the chemist, all the, the face washes and Mm. things like that. You and I were around when that initial face wash came out. Remember the ones with the beads in it? Yes, there were quite a few like that. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure those are now banned. Oh, really? Yeah, because when those first came out, everyone's like, oh yeah, you know, you're washing your skin with these beads and it's cleaning Mm. out your pores. But then all these environmentalists were like, yo, these beads are ending up in the ocean. Mm. So uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure those things don't exist anymore. But anyway, did you ever see a dermatologist when you were a kid? Yes, I did, many times. interesting. What was your experience like? It was good I guess like I think looking back I didn't have bad acne whatsoever but I was just quite self-conscious and Mm. due to my family I had easy access to a dermatologist so I got some medication like I remember I think it was called Ariacne which was a a facial sort of application and then you have like the 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 highest grade medication which is Ruaquitaine or something like that which you may have heard of but Mm. That has some serious side effects, so I didn't go on anything like that. But yeah, I think I didn't really think about the nutritional protocol in terms of acne prevention. But looking back, I wouldn't have needed it anyway, really. So your diet was pretty much in check as a teenager. It was just normal pubescent acne. Yeah, I think that was it. It was just the occasional few spots here and there. And then being at an all-boys school, you get a few teasing and then that makes you feel worse and then you try and do something about it. What about me at a co-ed school, you know? When you've got like one pimple on your forehead, you strike up a conversation with a guy. Like, you're just like, oh God, he's just looking at my pimple, isn't he? (laughs) 
oh man, what it was like in high school. Anyway, back to nutrition and acne. There certainly are quite a number of things that you can implement to try to have clearer, healthier skin and at least make it less likely for you to be acne prone. A few things that you can put in check nutritionally. Mm. And I think the current sort of consensus as to why some nutritional or some nutritional choices might contribute to acne is related to the high glycemic component of certain foods. Mm. And we know that when we eat high glycemic foods, we release insulin and insulin is an anabolic hormone and that might contribute to the production of acne or the occurrence of acne. And Mm. it's a lot more complicated than that. I'm not going to pretend like I understand because... Again, we're not dermatologists. (laughs) Yeah, but that does lead us to some recommendations, though, as to what might be done. And Mm. acne is also often corresponded with like a pro-inflammatory state. And that Mm. also links back to high glycemic foods, which are more pro-inflammatory than low glycemic foods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so acne, pretty sure it's like an umbrella term. So it encompasses like your whiteheads, your blackheads, and your pimples, and The way that you actually develop acne is your skin is quite oily and your pores can open up and you actually trap some like dead skin and some dirt within those oily pores and then it gets inflamed and then you develop something like a whitehead or a blackhead or a pimple. Mm -hmm. And on the topic of insulin and high glycemic foods, eating very high glycemic foods, getting a quite a large spike in insulin, it has been correlated with more oily skin. And then if you have more oily skin and your pores are open, then more dirt and bacteria are likely to stick to that oil and stick to those mm-hmm. pores and then become inflamed. Uh, coincided with a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. But I think along that, those lines then, we're definitely advocating for an anti-inflammatory diet. Mm. So it sounds quite fancy and it sounds complicated, but an anti-inflammatory diet is essentially following the five food groups. Mm -hmm. So eating an abundance of fruit and vegetables, prioritizing whole grains for your carbohydrate consumption, having a a smattering of dairy as well and Mm -hmm. lean protein sources. And there aren't really any specific foods in particular that are necessarily fundamental for an anti-inflammatory diet. Mm. Like for example, turmeric is quite common or has a bit of a health halo because it's high in curcumin, which is, has some anti-inflammatory properties, but it's really just about having a predominantly plant-based diet, which is Mm. our recommendation anyway. And there certainly are a few nutrients that you would get from all of those plant-based foods that have been shown to help with skin health. So things like your vitamin A and your vitamin E. So you'd be getting vitamin A and particularly your carotenoids from all of your colorful vegetables so things like your tomatoes and your carrots and your capsicums vitamin e from avocado and your almonds also things like omega-3 fatty acids from Mm -hmm. oily fish and plant sources of omega-3 fatty acids too all of your whole Mm. grains zinc as well i'm pretty sure is associated with skin health too but again all of those essential nutrients you get those primarily from plants yeah And there is also a lot of people do say that, oh, my acne is caused by dairy. And I always used to kind of brush off that statement. Mm. And a few years ago, I did a little bit more research into it. And there is actually some information that does support the notion that some dairy products might influence your acne. Mm -hmm. And 
I'm always careful about saying stuff like this because it's very easy for people to just be like, oh, I'm just going to cut out all dairy. But mm -hmm. like if you're not one, if you're not really having any issue with acne, then there's no point. Yeah. If it's not broke, don't fix yeah. it. If you're drinking milk and eating cheese and eating yogurt and you've got skin as clear as hell, mm. but then someone says, oh, you better cut out your dairy. You might get a pimple. You're like, oh, yikes. But mm. if you haven't had pimples, keep eating yeah. your dairy. But anyway, it's not the dairy itself. It's more so the presence of lactose, which is a carbohydrate within the dairy, which is more so higher in milk compared to cheese. So mm -hmm. the recommendation is more so to limit like milk products as opposed to cheese because mm. it's higher in lactose. Yeah. And when you consume those high lactose containing products like your milk or even some yogurts, mm. of course, because they've still got that carbohydrate content, it can increase what's called insulin like growth factor. And then that has been associated with some people with increasing their prevalence to developing acne. Mm. Yeah. I would say though, for most people, the, again, I'm not this is outside my scope, but if I was to take an educated guess, I would say that one, people's genetics and two, their skincare and hygiene in general would play a much more significant role than their nutrition in mm -hmm. terms of acne. Yeah, I And that's think coming from a dietitian. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's all correlated. And there's even some little things that aren't necessarily related to nutrition, but just basic hygiene, some things that people don't think about. So for example, how clean is your pillowcase? A lot of people sleep on the same pillow every single night. And I know for you and I, I do the laundry every three days or so. And I always throw in our pillowcases because if you're always sleeping on this thing for hopefully seven to nine hours every single night, your face is rubbing all over it. Your hands might are rubbing all over it. As well. Might have a dog, you know, you might shove it between your legs because you're like hugging it or something like that. Anyway, this pillow's rolling all around. over the place. You've never hugged a pillow before? Not like that, no. Oh, well, that's why I have two pillows. Um, but anyway, <laughs> throw in your pillowcase, guys, into your washing every single few days or at least change your pillowcase because if you're constantly sleeping on this same material every single night and you haven't washed your pillowcase for a number of days, potentially even a number of weeks, just think about how much dirt and grime and bacteria you're constantly sleeping on every single night. And we know at night, too, we sweat. It's very normal to, to sweat quite a bit at night as well. So I think just basic little hygiene things like that, like regularly washing your pillowcase and also regularly washing your face as well, not touching your face a lot either. There's a lot of different little things um, that can certainly play a role just mm. in your skin hygiene too. Yeah. I remember I used to use all those fancy face wash products, but now I just use soap. On yeah, my face and I just I just splash my face with water. Mm. Yeah, it's water, man. It's good stuff. <laughs> Don't need any of those beads. Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular content on our Instagram and YouTube channel. You can find those platforms by searching the Bodybuilding Dietitians. See you there. Bottom line, I think that developing acne is certainly multifactorial. Mm. It's going to be a combination of your genetics, your environment your overall health, your lifestyle, your diet, it's like muscle your gain hygiene. Is just your nutrition. Yeah, it's it's a huge combination of factors, but certainly nutritionally, I would certainly advocate for an anti-inflammatory diet. And they've even done studies to show that people who eat more fruits and vegetables because of all of the carotenoids in those foods, their skin literally glows. And if you guys have ever gone through a stint of like eating a lot of pumpkin or something like that, 
you might actually notice after a few weeks, you actually turn a slight tinge of orange because the beta carotene in pumpkins and carrots and sweet potatoes, it's actually absorbed and it's actually stored within your skin. And you can actually turn a slight tinge of orange. There's no toxicity for beta carotene because it's the inactive form of vitamin A. There's definitely vitamin A toxicity. But if you want to glow and you want your skin to just be glowing, eat more fruits and veg. Or drink some carrot juice. <laughs> can drink some carrot juice. Or I've always found though, personally, when I go through dieting phases, one, because I'm in a calorie deficit, my fat intake is usually lower. It's usually closer toward that like 40 gram mark per day. And perhaps it has something to do with just my body trying to conserve energy. I know I don't sweat as much when I'm in a dieting phase either. So perhaps my pores aren't as open, but I'm not prone at all to getting pimples when I'm in a dieting phase compared to sometimes, you know, I might get something pop up once in every, once in every while though, when I'm in an improvement season. Have you found that when you're dieting that your skin's a bit clearer? Yeah, I'm not sure why that is. Maybe because it's less oily. Mm, less oily. But also I know for you, when you're dieting, usually you have your diet's usually much higher in fruit and veg too. But mm. then to hit your carb intake during the improvement season, you obviously have to go toward those much higher GI, but more processed items. Mm. Yeah, I find that whenever I get some more skin issues, it's mainly associated with being in summer and training at the gym, getting all sweaty. And mm. then... Like if I wait an extra hour to have a shower after the gym, that usually contributes to having some some sin stuff. But yeah. if I stay on top of that, it's perfectly yeah. fine. Dude, it happens. You're not a bad person if you decide to go out on a hot Australian day and sweat and mow the lawn and you get some grass and dirt in your pores <laughs> and you get a pimple because of it. it. It just happens. But overall, I think that you can look at all of these little things combined to hopefully have clear skin because having nice clean skin it just it feels nice you know it feels good helps when you have a beard covering half your face as well does that help well i mean if there was something beneath the beard the mm. beard would help cover it up but yeah fortunately have, have you ever gotten a pimple though like in your beard before like like a like a follicle or something gets aggravated or you know mm. you get a pimple around there not in no not that's comes to mind yeah i i know in the past like i've gotten like a, a random pimple before in my eyebrow Interesting. you know it's it's really funky mm. do you ever get pimples on your earlobes no i never do mm. no anyway. it's usually like if it's on my face it's usually from somewhere where i've touched so for example like near my hairline like if i'm always tying back my hair trying to put it into a ponytail it's usually somewhere where the skin on my fingers has obviously come in contact with my head when i've been quite sweaty mm. Yeah, there's this amazing statistic, which I can't remember, but the number of people, that's typical me saying something like that, but you can Google this, like the number of times people touch their face per day. It's like mm. in the thousands. Yeah. It's crazy. It's wild. It isn't, wasn't that highlighted in, in one of those Contagion, movies? I think. Yeah. And they're like, stop touching your face. You're going to die. <laughs> You're going to get a pimple. <laughs> Either way, guys, eat your fruit and veg. But what's the next question, Jack? So this one says, what's your take on intermittent fasting? Hmm. Well, there's a lot of things that we could say here. What comes to mind? Yeah, well, I think usually when we get asked this question, it's from people who are interested in changing their body composition and either losing weight or gaining muscle or both at the same time. And I think that's important to highlight when we give the answer to this or give our take because it's going to be coming from a standpoint of 
looking to productively gain muscle or lose fat. But there's also the other side of the coin with people who don't have those goals and maybe they want to increase their longevity because there's some research being done into fasting, lots of different types of fasting about even like how to treat cancer through fasting Mm. and also improving your longevity through different fasting diets as well or modified fasting diets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. There is new research emerging about how low protein diets actually might have a place, particularly Mm -hmm. for the elderly, because protein, as we know, especially if you're consuming complete protein sources, they have adequate leucine in them, then that stimulates mTOR. And mTOR, it causes growth in the body. And sometimes it can cause cancerous growth as well. So it's not just stimulating muscle protein synthesis, but it can contribute to the growth of other tissues Mm. too. So yeah, the issue is like, we know that the elderly have an increased risk of sarcopenia Mm -hmm. and then and also they have a lower threshold too for actually stimulating muscle protein synthesis so it's that combination of like you can have a semi-high protein diet but those amino acids i feel have to be going to good use like Mm -hmm. you would need an elderly person who is also resistance training who they're giving themselves that stimulus through mTOR to actually build more skeletal muscle mass or at least maintain the skeletal muscle mass that they have rather than someone who's quite sedentary or not doing any resistance training and then they're indulging with a lot of amino acids. I think Mm -hmm. that's where they run into trouble. Mm. Yeah, well, anyway. Back to the fasting. (laughs) So the issue I have with fasting is we know that like one of the most important aspects of gaining muscle is muscle protein synthesis aside from the training itself like we uh, an adequate protein take and distribution and quality of protein is important for regulating or upregulating muscle protein synthesis which is it kind of says what it means it's the synthesis of new proteins and when we're fasting we can still have a total intake of protein that's adequate we can still have quality of protein that's adequate but the one variable that we do negate is the distribution of protein. So mm. if we're only eating in an eight hour window, we're severely restricting the distribution of protein throughout the day and the spike in muscle protein synthesis throughout the day as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it's really about here finding a happy medium. So recognizing that you don't have to go to the extreme end of fasting and only eat in like a four or a six or even an eight hour window, but if you extend that window to 10 or 12 hours, that's still half or even less than half the day where you're in a feeding window. And that means that over half of the day is in a fasting window. So finding that happy medium there. And it's not too difficult to achieve because let's say that you have breakfast at 7 a.m. in the morning, that means that you just finish your dinner by 7 p.m. Like Mm. that's a decent amount of time to fit in at least four meals during the day and still have a 12 hour fasting window. Cause there's certainly benefits to fasting. For example, autophagy, which is like the spring cleaning of your cells. It's when your cells clean themselves out, they degrade a whole bunch of waste products, they get rid of them. Also, it's nice for your digestive system to take a little bit of a break too, and not being constantly fed, even though I think that's near impossible unless you were waking up in the middle of the night to eat. (laughs) But obviously it's nice to have a break, but also it's nice to eat too. So I think finding that happy medium with eating within at least a 10 or a 12 hour window and then fasting for between 12 to 14 hours per day. 
or even a protein modified fast as well mm. or protein sparing where like some of my clients do this where they do like to buy a small food towards the evening which isn't our typical recommendation mm. but i think in a dieting phase particularly it might be preferential for them and to be honest like it, i've even talked to you about this like i might do something closer to that in my next dieting phase because it might help with my sleep which mm -hmm. got very poor towards the end of my last prep. But a, a protein sparing fast is when you basically have the protein, but not anything else. And then you would, let's say, have one or two, two serves of protein at, let's say, 8 a.m. and 12 p.m. And then you would ha still have that like four to eight hour window where you consume the rest of your calories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly decent. But I'm personally under the impression if you were to do that, you should try to do it on the flip side and still fuel more of the day and actually eat more of your calories earlier during the day. So mm. have a decent breakfast, well, I guess, yeah, either way, have a decent same. lunch, and then have protein servings in the afternoon. But either way, we know that intermittent fasting, it does help some people be successful in their weight loss endeavors because they are restricting their feeding window. And if you are restricting your feeding window, psychologically, you're like, okay, well, I've kind of set myself some boundaries here. I'm not quote unquote allowed to eat outside that feeding window. And if you're eating with your meals closer to one another, they're not like six hours spaced apart, then you are more likely to feel satiated and well energized throughout the day too. And also if you're more satiated, that means that you're less inclined to overeat. So you should be able to stay within a calorie budget. Mm. Hey guys, just a reminder that we don't just coach physique athletes, but we do coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. Therefore, if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services, you can always head over to our website at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com or alternatively, click the link in the show notes below. Yeah, the, the other thing I'll point out is when we think about fasting, we always think about a deficit, but in a surplus, I don't see a place for fasting really because imagine hoarding all your food for the evening, like you're gonna feel very, very uncomfortable and that might contribute to disordered eating and you're also gonna feel absolutely stuffed in the morning and you're gonna probably impair your sleep by hoarding all your food for the evening. And that's often why people, they, they upon doing dietary recalls with people, they indicate that they are not particularly hungry in the morning and usually that is because they are in this cycle of not eating much in the morning, getting hungry in the evening, eating a lot in the evening, and guess what? They're no longer hungry in the morning when they wake up. Mm -hmm. So they kind of need to interrupt that cycle by just having an evening where they don't eat as much, and then when they wake up, they'll probably be hungry. Yeah. And yeah. The hardest part is always just making that first initial step to mm -hmm. break that cycle, because the conversation I've had with a lot of people is that they're hesitant to do that because they have been saving so many calories for their nighttime meal for so long that it's always that rebuttal of, oh, but I'm just scared I'm going to get too hungry at mm -hmm. night. But the great thing is, is that if you fuel the day, if you flip it on its head and you eat more at breakfast and lunch, mm -hmm. you will be more satiated and you won't be as hungry yeah. at night. Remember, we don't, most people don't do anything at night. They're just on the couch or they're, they're working or they're studying. Yeah. They're, Behaviorally, they're... you don't need to fuel for Netflix. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unless it's Netflix and chill. <laughs> but anyway, guys, try to fuel the day. I think you're going to be feeling your best. And also there's a lot of literature to support that 
if you do fuel the day, one, your cells are more insulin sensitive during the day and more sensitive to actually taking up the glucose within your food. So you are going to have better blood glucose level control as well. And if you have more food during the day, you're going to be more energetic. Your neat levels will probably be higher. Your training performance is probably going to be higher. You'll probably just be a more lively person too. And what I found as well is that it really makes people less food focused because if you're constantly saving a lot of calories for later in the day and you're like, oh, I can't wait for dinner, you know, I've got 1,200 calories, what am I going to do with them? It makes people very food focused and throughout the entire day, they're constantly just thinking about their dinner and mm. fantasizing about it and it draws attention from other aspects of their life. Mm. It's kind of like working a job you don't want to work and then living for the weekend mm. and then you don't you end, like how much of your life are you not enjoying if the only days you look forward to is the weekend but mm -hmm. that's kind of that's very multifactorial yeah um, yeah that's something very interesting in with us where i know definitely for me at uni i'm the sort of person where i always kind of fixate onto something better if i'm not particularly if i'm if i'm uncomfortable like in prep like i would fixate on the off season or on my shows when I was at uni, I would always fixate on the holidays mm -hmm. and finishing exams and uh, something upon working with TBD, like starting up TBD the last few years is that that's no longer a thing. Like each day is is very much the same and very enjoyable, which is nice. Yeah, we absolutely love it. It's always other people have to remind us like, are you sure you want to check in that day? It's a public holiday. And I'm like, it is? Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, so life. this next question says, after 20 weeks of cutting, how long at maintenance before entering a surplus? Oh man, it flippin' depends. <laughs> yeah. I don't see any physiological benefit for the average person in being at maintenance. Mm. I think it might be one either psychological and feeling that if it gives you feel makes you feel a bit more comfortable being at maintenance for a bit before getting into a surplus, then great. The other side of the coin as well is if in going for a more conservative reverse approach, you unintentionally are at maintenance for a few weeks, that mm -hmm. might also be the case as well. Mm -hmm. It also, sometimes it's nice to do maintenance, but not necessarily at the very end of a cut, but mm -hmm. more so at the very end of a surplus before you go into a cut so that you can really cement a weight. Like mm -hmm. let's say you were trying to push your body weight up to 90 kilograms before you were going to enter into a mini cut. You don't want to just step on the scale one day and it's like 90.1 and you're like, woohoo. And then you immediately enter into a surplus the next day. Like you might want to try to really hold and solidify that 90 kilogram territory for perhaps like at least a week, but like maybe two to four weeks maybe before you mm. actually enter into a deficit. And why do you think some people recommend maintenance after a dieting phase? Well, the thing is, is that it depends, even though this person was dieting for 20 weeks, we never know what their initial starting point was mm -hmm. and we don't know what their actual goals are. Yeah. I guess because you and I were so bodybuilding well, You would assume focused. their goal is to gain muscle if they are, are talking about entering a surplus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. But. Yeah. Well, we just assume that everyone just wants to get jacked, <laughs> <laughs> um, which isn't a bad assumption, you know, would recommend. I um, think a lot of people say maintenance though, maybe not this person, but some people say, oh, after a prep enter maintenance and they... The synonym of that is weight gain, mm. as if they expect to gain weight at maintenance. But the definition of maintenance is it's maintenance. You might gain some body weight associated with water and glycogen, mm. but you 
won't be in a surplus so you won't gain any weight long term Mm -hmm. yeah i think definitely in the context of a comp prep if you've just been dieting for 20 weeks then certainly you need to get yourself into a surplus you need Mm. to start gaining weight right off the bat but if it was more of a lifestyle change like let's say that you were starting off from a relatively unhealthy body weight and you got yourself down to a healthy body weight and down to a healthy body composition and a really happy body composition that you feel super comfortable in Like, let's say that you drop down from 75 kilograms to 60 kilograms and you were really happy with that. And still for your height and your weight, you were still considered a healthy body weight. And even though you'd been dieting for 20 weeks and you had lost a significant amount of weight, you still have not an absurd amount of body fat on you, but you're not like comp lean. Then Mm. if that's where you're happy, man then yeah, you can enter into your maintenance calories. Yeah. But know that maintenance is a moving target. So you could try to maintain around that weight, but you could potentially try to keep pushing your calories up, maintaining that weight while you continue to train harder, recomp a little bit at that weight. But again, there, it reaches a point of diminishing returns. Like you got to do something. If you want to see significant change in your body comp, you're going to have to over time, push that body weight up. Mm. And this relates well to another question we got, which is the mental fight with your diet coming out of a comp prep and an increase in weight. Mm. Any tips? Well, what helped you when you were coming out of our most recent prep? Uh, Well, this kind of sounds bad for people who may not have competed, but it was honestly just how bad I felt in prep, Mm. me wanting to change that. Yeah. Both like physically and mentally. I was done and I wanted to gain some body weight and restore some normality Mm -hmm. again. Yeah. You reach a point where you genuinely do crave it. Like when you don't have much body fat on you, you don't have much energy at all in the tank. Your training performance really isn't sky high. Mm. You crave those sort of things. And with time and experience and acceptance and peace with the fact that, hey, gaining a little bit of body fat is perfectly fine. You become at peace with that and Mm. you're like, this is a totally fine thing to do and it's actually going to make me feel better and look better in the long term. Yeah. And I just try and break things. I'm a very objective person, so I like to look at things objectively, but not everyone does. So I kind of look at it and say, okay, what is going to happen if you gain some weight? What is your goal? If your goal is to gain muscle, what is going to happen if you don't gain weight? You're not going to gain any muscle. Mm. If you're still incredibly lean, you might even lose muscle. And there's a lot, I just try and think about it like that for me and for certain clients who also think like that. But ultimately I see weight gain post comp as a means to feel better, to actually look better as well, believe it or not. Uh, Because we do get very caught up in what we think we look like. And I know post comp, I just started to look a bit stringy and the longer you stay at that body fat, the to an extent, you, you look better after a bit of time at that body fat, but then you end up looking worse as a natural because your hormones are completely tanked. And once you regain a little bit of body fat, you'll fill out a bit more and you'll look bigger, especially in t-shirts because we don't walk around without a t-shirt all the time. And also weight gain is associated with like an increase in performance, an increase in muscle, uh, feeling better as well, interacting with people better going to more social occasions ultimately a higher quality of life Mm. yeah yeah i think that's why it's just so important to have these conversations and know what to expect well before you step off stage for the final time you're like okay well the diet's over like Mm. what to do now and it's really important to 
have those clear goals set and what is next and knowing exactly what you need to do to get there. And I think you're absolutely right. You, you do need to be objective about it too. But it obviously is tough because if you've been stepping on the scale every single morning for the past five or six months, hoping that that number is going to go down by a decimal point, when you start to see it going up in reverse, it you do have to get used to it initially, but you also just have to accept it. Like you said, how can I expect to grow muscle if I'm not gaining any weight? You know, that really is just wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. And also you have to have the courage to break through those like first two kilograms of weight gain because it's just weird. It, it comes on different. You know what mm. I mean? Like I remember you and I about a month post show, we got this photo with Lawrence at the gym and I know that we'd only gained about around two kilograms each by mm-hmm. that point. It was quite a few weeks post comp, but we don't look very good in that photo. You know, like <laughs> it looks like we've just gained like, pure body fat we still look kind of flat Mm. you know like it was winter we were a bit pale but like once we then gained another one or two kilograms on top of that it was like finally we were starting to put on some more muscle mass again Mm. but you just had to we had to break through that initial you know sticky portion well it's because your your body is literally primed for fat gain yeah like your body doesn't care at all about gaining muscle at that point we have to sometimes think about like the primal instincts of our body and Mm. and like how our body thinks for saving our life. Mm-hmm. Like how at that point, our body doesn't know that we've been dieting for a show. It knows that we've been starving it and it knows that it needs to put on body fat, mm-hmm. not muscle. Yeah. Ultimately, you can't fight it. It's inevitable. You can't just keep losing weight forever. And you've probably heard it a thousand and one times said on the gram, but being complete it isn't sustainable and you don't want it to be sustainable. Like we get to that condition for a purpose, but it's like you get in and then you get out. And there's been tens of thousands. Do you reckon there's probably been more than a million? I reckon there's been more than a million physique competitors walk this planet before, probably Probably well over, you know, the U S they've got shows happening every weekend in every state sort of thing. There's more than like a million followers of, IFBB Pro League or of NPC or something. So we could semi-confidently say there's probably millions of physique competitors out there. Millions of people have probably gone through physique shows and very similar journeys. And they probably with experience will all have a very similar thing to say Mm. about the post-show period and actually having longevity and success in this sport. But it just comes with experience and knowing what to expect, but having a plan in place and being like, okay, well, I want to get on stage again in two years and I want to look exceptionally different with a lot more muscle mass. Probably not going to do that if I maintain my comp weight for two years. Indeed. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, it's probably a good place to wrap up. Yes, it is. So let's end with something that we learned this past week. Do you want me to go first or do you have something? Uh, You're quite good at leading this uh, segue off. Okay. Well, after 147 episodes, I don't know the ratio of who's gone first. Something I learned this week is that apricots are actually a pretty decent fruit to put into ice cream, texture-wise. Because this past week, went down to Sam Coco's. They had these big $3 boxes of just random fruit, and one was filled with just a huge what, amount. What categorizes a random fruit, though? Just like, it, it's just like fruit... I, hmm... Um, <laughs> I've stumped you there. <laughs> yeah, what is a random fruit? What I would consider a random fruit at Sam Something Coco's. Something that's not an orange or an apple or a pear. No, it's like, 
a fruit that's just like mix and matched from all over their shelves but obviously someone's gone around with a big box and been like oh this one probably doesn't look like it'd sell at its prime it's got a bit of a bruise might as well chuck it in this box either way i got this huge three dollar box of apricots with quite a few avocados on top but I had like kilograms. Well, is a fruit, remember? Yes, it is. <laughs> but I, I, I had like kilograms of apricots. So I washed these things, I diced them up, and I froze them. The texture is actually so good in ice cream. Like it really fluffs up with the casing. It's nice because you know, you know, like I've tried a lot of different fruits in ice cream, and most of them are good decent like i've even tried like passion fruit and cherries and ice cream or rock melon yeah yeah that wasn't good Mm, candy melon wasn't that bad it was more just it was more just kind of icy like the the fruits that have like a really high hydration content not very good man like watermelon melon orange please for the dear (laughs) god i've done it don't do it do not peel and freeze your oranges they're awful in ice cream uh but apricots, really good. Apricots, strawberries, pineapple, mango, they're all up there. I honestly rate those things over bananas. Mm. Yeah, but apricots, good stuff. Yep. What did you learn this week? I learned that cobbler's pegs are the bane of our existence. <laughs> Can you explain what is a cobbler's peg? Yeah, it's hard to describe. It's like, I think it's a very Australian name for this certain weed, <laughs> which has all these cobbler's pegs attached to it. <laughs> Basically, they're this like spiky plant material, which then get attached to items of clothing or in our case, dog's fur. Mm -hmm. And the issue is when you go to take them out of the ground, is that all the cobbler's pegs fall off and then they, then they hatch. It's like a hive Mm. and then hatch more. So you have to then spray them. The issue with spraying them is that the dogs then lick the spray. Ah, so yes, we are awaiting our removal from this rental. Yes. Because <laughs> like in our, in our defense, like there were cobbler's pegs when we moved in. We didn't bring them with us. No, we did not. And the question is, do we own two border collies or two porcupines? Yeah. Well, thankfully you stay on top of keeping their coats very nice. <laughs> I'm good at brushing them. The thing is, is that I think females are probably better at brushing dogs than males because we're used to have been brushing our hair for so many decades. You know, we know how to be gentle and get out the knots without ripping out the hair. But I think that men, they don't quite, unless they have very long hair and they brush it. I don't think you guys know to. how to gently use a brush. Maybe. Yeah. I'd love to hear from someone else. Like, do you find that if you have a partner that the females, the dogs usually preferred being brushed by the females because the men are yeah, quite as... Yeah, I think they just, the dogs just don't like being brushed. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> Let's wrap up this episode, guys. If you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD, and we'll catch you next week. <laughs>